When Moses led the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, he learned the power and the love of God. Join me, Pastor Hook, as we learn lessons from the Exodus and God's great rescue. 34 of our study, Exodus, God's Great Rescue. And we started into this yesterday, into the Ten Commandments. We are now in Exodus 20. They've been rescued out of the promised land. They wander around for a little bit. Then they get to Mount Sinai. They can't touch Mount Sinai. And now the people of God are at the foot of Mount Sinai. It's covered with smoke and clouds and earthquakes and all that stuff. And now God is speaking in the midst of all of this to tell the people how they should live. And he gives them these commandments. And I said this at the last episode, that these commandments are not for God just because he hates us. These commandments were written by God as kind of a handbook as to how we should live our life. Like if we follow these 10 commandments, we will be doing pretty good. And so the problem is, is that these 10 commandments then can be used as a, uh, you know, to beat people over the head um, and to create political power and power structures and all that sort of thing, which is not the purpose of these 10 commandments. It's not the purpose of God's church. All of this was put into place because God loves us. He cares for us. He wants us to live our very best life um, in him. And that Ten Commandments is a part of that. Uh, so we started into the Ten Commandments at the last episode. We're going to, I'll just, we're going to just start at Exodus 20 again, just to kind of remind you of the setting of all this. But then we're going to get into the first one. So let's go ahead and read again from Exodus 20. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. We talked about this a little bit, but what does it mean to not have other gods? It means to make sure that you put God first in all you do. Only God is able to be in that first position in your life. There are people that put other things in front of God in their life, and it never goes well for them. Anything that you put in your life that is not God, it may be a great thing, but if it's not God, it will at some point uh, cause you to stumble because nothing in this world is perfect. Only God is perfect. Only God will not disappoint. Only God will not cry, cause a crisis of, of your soul, the, the dark night. Um, God is the only one able to do that because God's the only one perfect one that exists. Um, there, there may be other things out there that are good and wonderful but and that you can serve, but don't make them God in your life. Um, I think about people. I think where this comes into play is I think about people who don't have God in their life, and but they their their heart and their soul longs for deeper meaning. They long for something in their life that fulfills them, that completes them, that fills that void in their life that only God can fill. And and so if they're not followers of God, if they don't believe in God, then they'll probably attach to something else that has very very much importance in their life. But at some point, that's going to fail them. Like, what are these things? And I don't, it's, it's hard to say because I don't want to pick on anybody, but, but I'll just say generically, what about like a political party? 
maybe you believe that, and I won't pick on Republicans, I'll just pick on libertarians, right? Like maybe, maybe you think that if we could just, and libertarians are good because a lot of libertarians don't believe in God. They don't because God means power and control. Um, one of the main libertarian magazines out there is called uh, Reason Magazine, right? Everything is, is our mind. We can think about it. We can solve all these problems. Libertarianism is a branch of humanism. Um, basically that humans can figure things out if we just think about it strong enough. And so there's this what Matt, 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 Gillespie, Matt Gillespie, Nick Gillespie, uh, whoever, editor of, of Reason Magazine. He reminds me a lot of my brother. He wears a leather jacket. And uh, I have a brother who is very much a libertarian. Um, encouraged me to read Ayn Rand, the Atlas Shrugged novel. And so I did, which I really enjoyed. Um, anyway, they look a lot alike. Um, anyway, so that's neither here nor there. But... Um, Let's say that you were, that that is what you're going to live your life for, like that cause. Well, the problem is that that cause is never going to be perfect. Mankind is not smart enough to figure everything out. And there are going to be times when we go down paths that we should never have gone down. We're going to do things that we should have never gone down. Like for libertarians... They believe that, I mean, this is a kind of the, from the French laissez-faire, right? Like, let's get government as much about of people's lives as possible. Let people make their own decisions. And as a society, we will move forward best if we let people make their own decisions. Well, the problem is, is that collectively, we might do a decent job at that, but individually, we're going to do a horrible job of making our own decisions. But plus, the decisions I make do impact other people in this world. We have to collectively come together and make the best decisions that we can. We cannot live in laissez-faire. We cannot live in pure libertarian fashion. It just doesn't work that way. We are human beings that live together on a planet that what I do impacts everybody else. And so we have to, at some level, interact with each other. And that interaction is going to be messy and it's going to be difficult. And there are going to be times when we'll be angry. Uh, there, and, and, but if you, if you believe that the libertarian cause is the only way that this, survive, that this society can survive, and so you want to make sure that government doesn't overreach uh, and let as much personal freedom as possible into people's lives, it eventually you'll get destroyed by this. Um, we no governmental system on this earth is going to solve the problems. We ebb and flow between various forms of government for a reason, because no form of government is perfect, and we have to, we have to, at some point, have government control, and we have, sometimes we have too much government control, and we have to release things. There are times when the government does things right, and there are many, many times when government do does things wrong. Leaders, there may be some leaders that start out great and end up horrible. There may be some leaders that start out horrible and end up great. Uh, and then, of course, it's it's the the people that live after the leader that write the story about that leader to say whether or not he was good or, great or bad. So um, all that is to say is don't put your highest thing in your life as something other than God because it will destroy you. So for example, if you're libertarian, right? And you say, that's the highest cause. I'm going to fight for libertarian causes. I'm going to make that my life's cause. You get to the end 
of your life and you look around and you say, did that cause make a difference or not? And at some level, you might say, yeah, we did make a difference. But at some level, you might look at your life and say, was that all worth it? Like investing so much into that. The answer is no, it never is. No person, political party, cause, children, life, anything that deals with the things of this earth are going to, at the end of life, make you feel like you were whole and complete. The only thing at the end of life that really does feel fill the hole in your heart, the void in your heart that exists because of the human condition is God. God is the only thing that will be there at the end of your life. It's the only thing that will be clinging to you at the end of life that will give you deep meaning in the fact that you did live. Because what God says, and it's such a wonderful thing, is I created you, I loved you, I brought you into the kingdom. Everything about you is has been redeemed and I've been able to take everything about your life and mold it and shape it into my grand purpose that I set into place at the beginning of the foundation of the world. So while you die at the end of your life, an imperfect person doing imperfect things, I've completed you and what you did in this life mattered because I created you and I placed you in the kingdom and my kingdom is perfect and my kingdom never ends and you will be with me forever. I mean, that's where you want to be at the end of your life, folks. That's And throughout your life, that's where you want to be. That is where true fulfillment and joy and peace and love and hope and all these things come from. It's connection with the creator of the universe. It's nothing else. So, Put that first in your life. Make God first. And if you do, you will, you will never be disappointed. There'll be times when you may be angry at God. There may be times when you may be disappointed in God that he allowed something to happen that was difficult or painful. But remember, he allowed the most painful thing to happen in his own life. He became flesh and the world turned on him and crucified him. So he knows pain. He knows struggling. He is one with us in that. And he, understand, he understands betrayal. He understands hunger. He understands uh, family arguments. He understands broken relationships. He understands uh, cold, sick, you know, people being sick, uh, people dying, uh, people uh, having, uh, being paralyzed, uh, being lepers, uh, being in pain. He understands all this because he became part of us and lived with us for a while to understand fully what it likes, what it means to be fully human. And yet he is fully God. It's the only thing that makes sense. And so it is worth spending time on that, putting God first. And the other thing is Jesus himself. I I say this to people periodically, but I would put Jesus up against any other person that has lived on this earth. He was, if you look at the life of Jesus and just look how he lived his life, (laughs) he was humble. He was poor. He, all the things that we, that we assign value to on this earth, he, he devoided himself or eliminated all that stuff in his life. The only thing that he had in his life was relationship with other people and serving and loving and caring for other people. And all of that stuff is treasures in heaven. That's all the stuff 
that remain after we die. All the physical things uh, will go into the grave with us. But those relationships, the love, the joy, the peace, all the stuff that Jesus carried with him on this earth, all that stuff went with him in eternity. All those relationships went with him in eternity. All the healing that he did went, went with him into eternity. And so if you want to live the best life that God, then emulate Jesus. You know, don't be so, uh, don't cling vor- voraciously to the things of this life that really in the end don't matter. Cling voraciously to the relationships and the love and the hope and the joy of people and uh, and his kingdom and all that stuff. It all ends up with you in eternity. So it is it is the one thing that is worth clinging to in this life because it never goes away. And that is a cause worth dying for. That's a cause worth living for. Everything else is going to fail you. And they may be good things. The the one that, that Tim Keller talks about in his book, we mentioned this in yesterday's episode, is that he wrote a book called No Other Gods. One of the things that parents particularly do is they'll put all of their chips and their love and their hope and their joy and everything into their children. Um, Sometimes this is called tiger moms or helicopter moms and dads or things like that, where your whole life is devoted to your children. And that's not a bad thing. Most parents will devote their whole entire life to their children. But if you do it too much, first of all, you suffocate your children, right? But secondly, no child is going to No child is going to be perfect. So at every level, your child is going to disappoint you. And because you are a sinful human being, at some level, you are going to destroy your children, no matter how good of a parent you are. Because you are a sinful human being, you will never parent perfectly. And so at some level, you will disappoint your children. And at some levels, it may be so disappointing that that your children turn on you and never speak to you again. Now, I pray that that doesn't happen. I mean, that... That would be a very, very difficult thing to live with. But it does happen, and I've seen it happen. But I, I've, seen, I've seen parents and children relationships frazzle. I've seen sibling relationships frazzle. Uh, I, 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 you know, and particularly, you know, when I get old and cranky, um, um, I pray that my children overlook the fact that I'm living cranky right now and understand that deep down at one point I was a rather, you know, I, I did love them, even though now I'm cranky and old, right? But, um, but that happens. The older we get, the more uh, we, I, I, I don't know. It's just the older we get, the more difficult, I think. Maybe the, the blinders come off, the, the filters come off. I don't know what it is. But there's, um, you know, particularly, uh, and it's not everybody, but it just, it just becomes harder. Life becomes more difficult when you get older. And so you have to rely on other people, which you may not have had to do before. Um, you know, just just doing the basic things of life become more and more difficult. And so, you know, we get cranky about that. I'm going to get cranky about that. Although maybe by the time I'm 100 years old, if I ever live to be 100 years old, they'll have all of these technologies that make my being 100 years old very easy. I have no idea. But we'll cross that bridge when we get there. Um, but I'm not perfect. Even even as a parent, I'm not, I'm not perfect. I'm not even close to it. As a matter of fact, I I look back at it and I think, I, man, I did so many things wrong. Um, but if if my whole identity of who I am, my well being, my identity was as a parent, a good parent, 
uh, and then you get old, get to my age and realize how many stupid things you did, it could really destroy you. It really could. Um, th- that's why being in the kingdom, having having faith that God redeems us and gives us guidance and all that, I mean, really, truly is the only way to live our life. So this is for our benefit. You shall have no other gods before me. Uh, verse 4, God continues. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Ah, so much here. So basically, don't make a graven image. Now, what's interesting is that there are many, many religions out there that do make graven images, and they will make images of God or of gods. Let's put it put it that way. Um, there, uh, I, I'm thinking particularly in uh, the Hindu religion, probably is some of the most of the Eastern religions where they'll actually have something that represents for them God, and they'll place it in their house. And they'll put candles around it and, and meditate around it. And that, that's where the presence of God is. And God says, no, don't do that. Don't make any image of anything that represents me. I am the creator of the universe. Don't make anything that that is a representation of me. And yet we as humans, we want to have representations of God because that's how we live. We like to have places where we focus to have God exist. In the church, so many times we'll say that the sanctuary that we worship in, that we worship the sanctuary, we should never worship the sanctuary ever. Uh, in the Reformation, right after the Reformation, the uh, Roman Catholic Church had made images of things in their churches. And, the, and these people that came after the Reformation, they went into a lot of these places and they you know knocked down and tore off all these images um, iconography in the what in the eastern church they have all these icons that they'll put in church those are so you know if they represent a story and they lead you to the creator then they're not bad but if you start to worship the icons God doesn't want that because the icons are imperfect the icons can go away what God's concerned about is our heart he doesn't want us at the end of life to be destroyed by anything that can that can cause us to falter. And so icons or images or things like that, even today, like if you want to sell your house and you're a Roman Catholic, you, you buy an image of Joseph, you place it upside down and put it in your lawn, and that's supposed to help your house sell better. I mean, this is kind of the wives' tales that they have. Now, or maybe it actually does, you know, maybe there is... Saint Joseph out there helping us sell our houses. I have no idea. I'm not going to not going to delve into that. But at some level, what if your house doesn't sell? Does that create a spiritual crisis in your life? Well, if Joseph was your ultimate identity, it could. But if you are a mature Christian follower of Jesus and God is first in your life, then you say, well, maybe God didn't want me to sell the house and maybe I should stay here. And it's part of God's plan. It's going to be difficult. I don't understand it, but I'm going to move forward because I trust in God. I know that he loves me. Um, But so many times we as humans want to create visual depictions and things on this earth that represent God that we worship. 
in uh, in the uh, Islam religion, you go into uh, Mecca, Medina, Mecca. They've got this big, huge Kabbalah. It's a big. I, I don't know how. I've only seen pictures of it. It's like big black cube sitting in the middle of the square, the town square, and then you have tens of millions of Muslims that come and worship and they make a pilgrimage, a Hajj journey to this to this Mecca to see the Kabbal and um, the Kabbalah. And, um, and they worship it. Now, if they're monotheistic and they believe um, that Abraham, well, remember, this is, this is a different crowd. So this is, um, I don't know if they follow the Ten Commandments. They probably follow the Ten Commandments. They have to follow the Ten Commandments. Their Abrahamic religion, this is Abraham. So they probably do. So they have some sort of theology. I've never looked into this, but they have to have some sort of theology about what the Kabbalah is and what it represents and how they have to be very, very careful not to worship it. But I do think about these things. I mean, if you're... If your representation of God is a Kabbalah or the temple or all these things, then very bad people are going to come into place and they're going to create political structures to protect it because it's going to make them powerful and rich and wealthy and important people. And that's what God doesn't want. I mean, even in the Ten Commandments, God does not want anybody to use a representation of him for power and politics and and wealth, that, which is why he doesn't want us to have anything on this earth other than him. Everybody has free access to God, and nobody can grab a hold of some image of God and say, I've got God here, so make sure you come and follow me. No, God doesn't do that. God says, you can come directly. Everyone is part of my kingdom. There is no thing on this earth that represents me, that's going to give a hold, a political hold or a power hold over anybody else. That doesn't happen. So don't make an image of anything that represents me. Don't bow down to it or worship, for I am a jealous God and I punish the children for the sin of the parents of the third and fourth generation for those who hate me. So he's also saying that if you do hate him by not keeping his commandments, by not being in his kingdom, there will be punishment and I, I mean, it sounds like he's going to be punishing, and maybe at some level he is, but you're punishing yourself. You're, you're falling into sin, which destroys life. But he shows love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Um, that is what God wants. He doesn't want you to hate him. He wants you to love him. He wants you to follow. Why? Because when you don't follow God, that sin, that, that lifestyle, the, the repercussions of not staying within the boundaries of what God has set for you, those will go into the third and the fourth generation. And this is so true. Think about your father or your grandfather. I'm just going to go with fathers now. Your father, your grandfather, your great-grandfather. What did they do? How did they live their life? And are there repercussions of how they live their life that you are still living with today? And the answer is, of course, because if you had a scoundrel for a you know great-great-grandfather, he created so much damage to the people around him that sure, it, it came upon his children and his grandchildren and his great-grandchildren. Now today, it's probably not as much. Like at the time of, of the Exodus, 
your family was your reputation. So if your great grandfather did something really, really bad, it did directly impact the children and the grandchildren, the great grandchildren, if they survived. Because if he did something really bad, he was probably kicked out of the community and um, you know had to be a migrant or a, you know a journeyer uh, to to go around and live his life without a community around him, which completely destroys things. So. It, much, much more important back at the time of Moses. But even today, the, the, the sins of our grandfathers do come on us. I, I'll just close with this. I'm, the way I uh, live my life and raised my children, I would say a great majority of that came from my father. And my father is still a very, very loving, wonderful, compassionate man. And he got that from his father, who was a loving, compassionate man. Um, my understanding is that his father showed love in a very, very difficult, different way, where it was all about punishment, obeying the rules, and a lot of corporal punishment that dealt that was very, very painful and sometimes left scars and marks and things like that. I don't think my grandfather, my great-grandfather, was different from anything else around at that time. I think that's how people kept children in line is that they pulled out the switch and they used it mightily. <laughs> and and they did it because you know, part of it was it was probably the expectation of society back then, but part of it was at some level they wanted their children to be, you know, to to grow up, you know, following the rules and doing things that they should. Um, so there was probably a mixture of, of love and societal pressure, but it took, a, I, I was not beaten as a child. So it took two or three generations for that to work its way out of the system. And, and it finally did, uh, you know, I, I did spank my children, but I didn't beat them, <laughs> but I don't think my children are gonna, you know, spank any of their kids. Um, at least I don't know. We'll see how they, how that happens, but you know, that's just one example. There's a lot of examples of that, about how the the sins of the parents and and the ethos of the parents gets pushed down. And but love, you know, if you love God, that that love, that lifestyle of love, that joy, that peace, um, that extends for generations, much much more than than the anger and the hate and the pain and the and the sinful way that we live as parents. So that's that's actually a promise there too. Um, that all the good things you do get, you know, it's not like Caesar. When uh, when he died and Mark Antony said, um, friends, Romans, countrymen, lend you, I come to bury Caesar, not to to love him. The the good that men do off live the the evil that men do lives after them, the good is often teared in their bones, right? Um, we as a society love to remember the bad things and not the good, but God is just the opposite. He remembers all the good things and the bad things disappear over time, and that's because he's a loving God. I used to know that soliloquy. Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your I come to bury Caesar, not to praise him. The evil that men do lives after them. The good is often teared in their bones. Come I to speak at Caesar's funeral. He was a friend faithful and just to me. Something like that. Anyway, uh, I think we'll end it there. We kind of got to the first commandment and then we'll we'll continue on. So um, let's close in prayer. Gracious God, thank you for this time. Man, thank you for the beauty of your creation, the storm last night. 
Uh, thank you for the for the beautiful smells of the desert this morning. Uh, be with us for the rest of today and bring us back again safely when we meet again. In Jesus' name, amen.